According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Rapidly approaching the coveting. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's a complete Jewish Bible that's in print, and I'm starting to get more and more fond of it. I look at it every so often in my uh, Logos Bible software. And uh, in verse 14, where it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, it uses this marvelous Yiddish expression where uh, we're supposed to do all things without kvetching or complaining. And, uh, and I like that, but even put it on Facebook the other day. Uh, we're, we're not quite there yet, though. We're still talking about God at work in us, both to will and to, and to work for His good pleasure. Uh, this is the key to uh, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. If we're going to accomplish our own salvation, then we've got to realize we can't be the ones doing it. That it's God is the one who's doing it. And so this then is, uh, is our good pleasure to, to take a look at. And speaking of good pleasure, that's what He's doing. He's doing what pleases Him. And uh, not pleasing us, as it were. The, the plan of God is not center on us. And uh, the sooner we figure that out, I think the, the better we're going to do. So that's where we are. Let's open with a word, word of prayer, though. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's come before Him in prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship and that we're humble to receive His authority. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you for the grace provision, Father. This uh, lampstand is here because you're a God of grace. And we thank you for your grace that sustains us day by day, moment by moment, year by year, and generation to generation, Father. You are the faithful God, and we give you the praise and the glory. For this morning, Father, we thank you for the blessing it is to assemble together. We're here. Uh, we're not in hiding. We're not in fear. Uh, we were in a public building with a sign out front and, uh, and a website telling the whole world who we are and what we're doing. And I thank you for that, Father. And so we call upon your faithfulness now to, to hedge us about, protect us, to bless our time together, to open the eyes of our understanding and to feed us, Father, from the truth of your word. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in this uh, paragraph then from verse uh, 12 down through verse 18, and that's the paragraph that is uh, simply uh, titled, Work Out Your Salvation, and that is the, uh, the exhortation here. It follows the exhortation to uh, make my joy complete in verses 1 and 2, and the exhortation to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's verses 3 through 11. And so this chapter really opens with these three exhortations, and uh, this now being the third and final one, work out your salvation. Work it out accomplish it. And as we uh, dealt with the vocabulary there, we saw the achievement, the production, the accomplishment, everything that uh, caught Ergodzimai speaks to. And so uh, a couple of points of study then, and then we bring uh, us now to main point three, where we're uh, currently detailing uh, these aspects here in verse 13. And so if you think that uh, the, the, the production or the achievement or the accomplishment, if that's left up to us, then we are uh, unworthy. <laughs> we are unable, we are, uh, we are in over our heads, 
and let's just close our Bibles now and go home. Uh, the idea of saving myself. That's not possible for phase one salvation uh, to give me eternal life. That's not two in phase two salvation where I'm delivered from the power of sin in the present experience. Uh, and it's not certainly not going to be true for phase three salvation as far as my promotion to glory when I'm face to face with Jesus Christ. So the three different ways in which the Bible uses save or salvation are clear. And uh, there's, there's none of them that we can accomplish ourselves with our own ability, with our own human effort. The arm of flesh will fail you, as, uh, as the hymn says. And so it's, it's God himself that does the work, and we can appreciate that. Assigning the production, achievement, accomplishment to us for any salvation seems ludicrous until we learn that it is God himself who is at work in us. And I love that. I love the fact that God is at work. He's at work today. Uh, God, he never takes a day off. He never takes a vacation. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna, he's not going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He's not going to wake up and decide, yeah, you know, I just don't feel like it today. You know, I think I'll just, you know. And he never phones it in and, and kind of sloughs it off like, like uh, folks, humans are, uh, are known to do. So we can appreciate that. The one working in you is God. And uh, we talk about energeo. We talk about not just working, uh, but, but powerfully working. The, the, uh, the energy that comes within the Greek vocabulary of energeo. And it is a present active participle. He is continuously doing this. He is the one working in you. And so, um, I realize in the New American Standard it kind of puts it in a different word order where it says, for it is God who is at work in you. Uh, I prefer to render it, the one working in you is God. And uh, and that's the uh, the statement there. The the, the syntax of the, of the passage is the same that we have in, in John chapter 1, uh, where in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's as plain as can be, the Word was God. It's the same thing here. The one working in you is God. And so we uh, we can uh, rest confidently in that. There was a prototype for that because he was at work in Christ, that uh, the God was at work in Christ. God the Father was at work in Jesus Christ during his first Advent ministry, that he was the one reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them. And so I encourage you to take a look at Second Corinthians 5 and pay attention to that and show the work of God the Father in Christ. See, we normally associate in Christ with positional truth doctrine, in Christ with our blessings in the church age, whereby we are baptized into union with Christ. There's a whole realm of theology there that centers on our positional truth in Christ. Well, there's a prototype for that. The Father was in Christ. The very first one ever in Christ was God the Father. And uh, during His first Advent incarnation ministry. Now where we presently are looking at this in the, in the dual mode, God the Father's work operates in dual mode. See, God can uh, do two things at once. He can do multiple things at once. He can uh, you know, walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. God can work, and this is the dual mode that's mentioned here, to will and to work. To will and to work. And really, I think the work is probably the easy part for him. It's the will. The will that God works in our will. See, He doesn't control our will. He doesn't force our will. He doesn't sovereignly create our will and plant it there and and make us do what we do. But He works in our will even as He works in our work. See? 
And so this tandem, this, this, this uh, partnership that we have, because we're called as fellow workers, we're called as partners. How does this work? How does this come together? And I think there are significant studies, I think there's very deep studies actually to, uh, to plunge into when we talk about the will. And so thelo is the verb that you want to look at, T-H-E-L-O is the Greek verb. Uh, there's a noun that goes with that called thelema that I put in a subpoint there. All right. Um, Thelo and Thelema, those are vital. Those are so vital. I think uh, um, Satan hates them, and I think that he uh, he uses them to create cults. In fact, there's if you Google it, I, I don't recommend Googling it, uh, but there is a Thelema cult that's out there that uh, they call themselves. Uh, anyway, it's, it's not Christian, it's not biblical, and it's not good, so stay away. All right. Um, but the fact that Satan perverts such a thing and uses it as, a, as an avenue of attack, to me, uh, that's telling. To me, that kind of spotlights the fact that this must be a, a critical doctrine that uh, that uh, our adversary is eager to to confuse things with. In any event, the dual mode is our will and our work. Fellow is the verb to will, and and energeo is the verb to work. All right, and so those aren't uh, surprising as much as uh, as uh, some of the other terms that we've had, but there they are. The uh, the tandem of fellow with thelema supplies an inductive study for the for the will of God, and we did that study as a part of basics. We included thelematology as uh, the the doctrine of of the will of God. How do I know the will of God? How does any believer know the will of God? How do I know uh, what woman to marry? How do I know what job to take? How do I know what church to attend? How do I know uh, anything in the will of God? See, and uh, and it's curious to me because there are. Um, there are people who will tell you that, well, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. Do whatever you want to do. You know, take whatever job you want to take. Uh, attend whatever church you want to attend. Marry whatever girl you want to marry. God has no specific will for your life. And that is just anathema to me. I think, how in the world, to me, the Scripture is so overwhelming and so clear that God has a will for your life. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Run with endurance the race that's set before you. It doesn't say pick out whatever race you want to run and go run it. You've got to run the race that's set before you. God is the one that, that puts that race there, including you know, the turns it takes and the obstacles and the, the surprises along the way. Okay? God's in charge of all that and rejoice uh, that, that He's so faithful in that. And then perhaps the, the most uh, clear is Ephesians where it says we are saved unto good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The divine decree from eternity past listed out a long list of works that you're supposed to do. And that's a part of His will. Along with, of course, the long list of works that your helpmate is expected to do with you. Okay? So the whole idea then, if, you've, if there's works prepared for you and there's works prepared for her, God's not a dummy. <laughs> All right? He has coordinated your work with your helpmate and her work, and there it is. God knows what He's doing. And rejoice in that. So it is an inductive study for the will of God, and, um, and I think it's a basic study. I think that a, a brand new believer just saved this morning uh, needs to get, start to get oriented to what the Scriptures are about and what the will of God is about, and how do I find the will of God? Ephesians 5 says, do not be foolish, but understand the, what the will of the Lord is. <laughs> you know? So there you have it. If you don't know God's will or you're not seeking it, you're a fool. You know, that's not me calling you names, that's Ephesians 5 calling you names as far as that goes. So it is a, an important study. You can do it inductively. We recommend that. 
Um, and also, the will of God should never be a, just a theoretical study apart from the practical. See, some people are great on theory and awful on, on the practical, okay? Whether it's music or whatever else they're doing. Others are great on practical and, and they kind of blow off music theory. But uh, in any event, uh, for the will of God, if you're just a, a hearer of the Word and not a doer only, uh, the book of James has, has some verses for you there on that. that that's, that's self-delusion. That's not what he would have for us to do. It should never just be a theoretical study apart from the practical study of his works. What is God's will and what are God's works? Because uh, that tandem is there. And uh, especially in John 4.34 and Ephesians 1.11 as well as our verse today in, Ephes- in Philippians 2.13. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Finally then, if our struggle, if our will struggles to be conformed to God's will, then guess what? Our work will likewise fall short. Our work will likewise fall short. And uh, you can go to Romans 7 if you like and you can see it's a battle of the will. And sometimes, uh, you know, Paul freely admits, he says, I'm not doing what I want to do and I'm doing what I don't want to do. And how is this? How can I find myself doing what I don't want to do? Well, because I have my will, but my sin nature has its will. And, and guess what? They're, they're at odds, okay? And uh, quite often I find myself surrendering to my sin nature. We all do. And uh, we don't have to. How, how sad is it that, that we do, see, in, uh, in those circumstances? Now all of this then gets us to the idea of good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The work that He's doing is centered on His good pleasure. The will is for His good pleasure. The work is for His good pleasure. The eudikia that's used here in this verse is, uh, is the, uh, is the uh, objective. To will for His good pleasure, to work for His good pleasure. Both verbs have the same uh, objective here. And it's the good pleasure of God, not my personal happiness, not my, uh, you know, my druthers, my preferences. God did not consult me in, uh, in eternity past as if he could have, as if he would have, right? We weren't here in eternity past. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that put those decrees in motion. And uh, this is his wisdom, his grace, his mercy, and uh, his good pleasure. So uh, eudakia is a good term. I recommend if you want to do a word study in this, there's only nine uses. I probably put all nine of them on that slide. <laughs> all right. Now that I counted out, Matthew eleven twenty six, Luke two fourteen, Luke ten twenty one, Romans ten one, Ephesians one five and nine, Philippians one fifteen two thirteen. Yep, I did. Second Thessalonians one eleven. I listed all nine uses there. So there you have it. Dakeo, of course, is a thinking verb. This is dakeo, uh, dakia. Uh, a word for what does it, what does it seem? How does it seem to you? Um, if you think about it, what are your thoughts? And then, of course, the eu prefix is is the uh, the adverb for something that's good or something that's well, and so something that's uh, that's well pleasing. You know, you look at it, you think about it, and you like it. That's the idea here: God's good pleasure, and uh, that's what we have. So. Um, we can run through these and it won't take a, a whole lot of time, but just understand that. The will of God is His good pleasure. His good pleasure. What pleases Him? What is the nature of our God that has pleasures, that has 
appetites, that has things that smell good and things that don't smell good, things that look good and don't look good, things that sound good and don't sound good. Why, you know, why do we have a universe like this? Why, why do we have this capacity ourselves? What is the, what is this an, an illustration of? And when we understand that the Bible describes God Himself with, with these kind of, um, sensibilities. These kind of, uh, he has the capacity to discern. All right. Now, when we, when we talk about this, um, sometimes it's, uh, it communicates well and that sometimes it really makes folks uncomfortable. All right. And so I want to make sure that we're clear on this. God has preferences. God has, uh, taste. God has uh, a discerning eye and a discerning ear. He's got the capacity to identify beauty from ugliness, good sounds from bad sounds, right? And so this is not just a human capacity. We, you know, we hear music that is music to our ears and we appreciate it and we, it, it blesses us. And then there's other music. It's just, okay. All right. And it just, and then I'm talking about you know, genre or style or just things that, you know, just, they, they legitimately, intrinsically sound bad. Because, well, I mean, if you're a parent and you've sat through a piano recital with your four-year-old, you know, you realize they will get better. They're just not there yet, okay? They do get better. But there are sounds that sound terrible. There are smells that smell terrible. And smells that smell great, okay? Right? Dead cow. Dead cow on the grill is one of the best smells in the world. You know, mmm. Sharon's in there fixing dinner. I'm a mmm. Dead cow. That's yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, but dead cow in a ditch. Dead cow in a you know muddy pond with the flies buzzing and ooh. Okay, dead cow both 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 ways. Why does one smell great? Now, this is what I'm illustrating, okay? God has sensibilities, aesthetics, if you want to call them aesthetics, the capacity. And so the things that he sees, he sees beauty, he sees ugliness. He hears wonderful praise, but he also hears the the, the ugliest blasphemy that the the tongue can utter, okay? The sweet-smelling aroma of our sacrifices is a sweet-smelling aroma, unless it's grudgingly or under compulsion, then, uh, then it's a stink, right? And so all of these things, uh, this, this, I think this is, um, this is where the objective standard of the Word of God reaches us and our subjective applications and, and conformity, uh, that the more and more we're molded into the image of Christ, the more and more that our sensibilities are going to uh, conform to God's sensibilities, right? Are we clear on that? So in the human terms, in the human terms, hey, more power to you, all the fun in the world you want. We, we're not trying to be conformed to one another in, in external things, right? My wife likes chocolate, I like vanilla, great, okay? It means we, we, we fight less, okay? <laughs> it, means, it means I'm not trying to take from her and she's not trying to take from me and, and we're great. You know, uh, other things as matters of taste, you know, seafood versus, you know, all these things, great. You've got your music genre, I've got my music genre, whatever the case may be, okay? And so we're not trying to, we're not trying to force any of that, but in the spiritual realm, 
in the spiritual realm, if our attitude is different from God's attitude, if we find an attractiveness to what God finds abhorrent, now we've got an issue. Now we've got a sin issue. Now we've got a concept that has to be adjusted. And so all of this comes into, into focus here. And so a study on the well-pleasing aspects, I think, is, is good. All right, so Matthew eleven twenty six, and you'll, start, you'll see these. There's only nine of them. It won't take long. Matthew eleven twenty six. Paragraph beginning here in verse uh, 25. And this, this actually comes in the, in the uh, aftermath of what we were in a week ago, looking at counterfactuals, the if-then, and if, uh, you know, what would it have taken for Sodom to repent and the things there. Um, but verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And so here's right off the bat, here's the first use of Eutychia in the New Testament, and, and there's so much we can unpack right from that use right there. You know, when you're contrasting the simplicity of the Word of God and the blessing the blessing for believers to just be born again, to have spiritual eyes, to look at the Bible, to have God teach us. Isn't that easy? Isn't that great? Just be saved and be in fellowship and be humble. You can receive the word implanted that's able to save your soul. And you can grasp the depths of doctrine like, like you know, unbelieving smart people have no clues. <laughs> okay? We're talking about, you know, PhDs, mathematicians, all kinds of folks. Uh, genius Scrabble players that, that beat me nine times out of ten. Um, and yet, you know, this one guy in particular I'm praying hard for, I'm witnessing to him, but he thinks the universe is God. How sad is that? You know, how sad is that? The universe is God, wow. Because uh, your God is running out of energy. <laughs> your God is decaying. Your God has a, a second law of thermodynamics that's, you know, not looking good for your God. My God is going to be here forever. And uh, he's not running out of energy. And um, anyway, there's other, other things there to pray for. But as it says, uh, well-pleasing in your sight that things are hidden from the wise and intelligent and revealed to infants. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so all of this is a part of the Father's good pleasure. Luke 2.14. Luke 2.14 is our next Eutychia reference. And of course this is a Christmas message usually when uh, the shepherds are out there watching their flocks by night and the angels show up and uh, suddenly there appeared... With the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. With whom he is well pleased. And so this shows the good pleasure of God, but it also shows the good pleasure of God that's particularly directed to us, to those that are redeemed, to those that are, that are saved by the gift of his Son. Um, is that good pleasure then bestowed upon the unbelievers? Is that good pleasure uh, bestowed upon those who reject his son? No, of course not. And uh, aspects there. Luke uh, 10.21 um, 
Same as the Matthew reference there. Different context, actually, because this is uh, in the aftermath of discussing Satan. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And uh, vital that we recognize uh, the uh, angelic conflict and how it applies in the church age and our need for uh, for the, the armor of God. We've got an armor of God lesson tonight coming up, by the way, in at six o'clock. Looking forward to that. Anyway, um, he says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So the power that we have in the angelic conflict, the armor, the weaponry, everything, we're invincible when we use it. We're very invincible when we don't use it. <laughs> okay, If you take off your armor, uh, guess what? This, uh, this promise about not getting hurt doesn't apply. Uh, you will get hurt when you don't use God's resources. Um, anyway, don't get prideful. Just be humble and rejoice in your salvation. Your name is recorded in heaven. And again, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. You have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Romans 10.1. Then we get into Paul's epistle. So between Matthew and Luke, we've got three uses in the Gospels, and now we've got the, uh, the other six are all Pauline references. Romans 10.1. And this is uh, uh, Paul's uh, good pleasure. This is Paul's desire. This is what would, would please Paul. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Talking about his fellow Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans 9, 10, and 11 center on that. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I testify about them, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Misdirected zeal. How dangerous is that? <laughs> okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a religious way to go. All right, well, so God has desires, we have desires. What happens if they conflict? Well, we've got to say, not my will, but thine be done, don't we? That uh, if, if my will, if my desire is different from God's will and God's desire, then, uh, then thank God for that. Think that, uh, you know, maybe we're praying for the wrong thing. Maybe we're asking for the th- wrong thing. Maybe we want the wrong thing. And God says, no, this is what I have, and this is better. Because God knows better than we do. And uh, thank him for that. Uh, Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 5 and verse 9. Here's a passage for you. This is the one that feeds into the fullness of time in verse 10. This is the context here for the, the, uh, the, the grand conclusion of the Father's plan. You see that in verse 10 where it says, with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. That's the Father's end game. (laughs) That's his end game plan right there, with a view. That's what he's kept in his focus. Never took his eyes off that objective. And in the process of this, uh, the hymn, the the praise, the sentence begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So it's a hymn of praise to God the Father. 
Everything here is what the Father has done in Christ. Just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, in the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. If we, if we are bearers of holiness, as uh, you might have read over the weekend in, on my Facebook wall, um, this atheist friend of mine, he's, he, he, gets, he gets upset with some uh, you know, legalistic Christians that he's met over the years. And uh, my goal in witnessing to him is I don't want to be another one. <laughs> I want to be a grace Christian that he can kind of contrast with whatever chain of legalists he has in his past. Okay? But if we are special bearers of holiness, why are we special bearers of holiness? Not because we've earned it or deserved it. And not because we've made ourselves holy. Not because we've, we've somehow made ourselves better than the next guy. Okay? We're no better than the next guy. We're probably ten times worse than the next guy. But grace has saved us, and if we are bearers of His holiness, it's God's doing, not ours. And uh, this is what we see in this verse. So um, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Now notice, according to. There is an accordance. There is, a, there is something that's in, in view here according to the eudikia, the kind intention of His will. The kind intention of His will. And this is why I think eudikia is a vital study. I think eudikia has to be connected with the will of God. It's connected with the will of God in Philippians 2.13. It's connected with the will of God here. Eudikia is connected with thelema, with the will of God. And so the will of God is not tyrannical. The will of God is not just, you know, sovereignty to the exclusion of every other attribute. And in fact, the will of God is not even a sovereignty application. It is a good pleasure application. How about that? All right. You know, I, and I think it's, it's just so infantile. It, it really is. It is a, it is a, 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 a young Christian view that sovereignty means do anything you want to do. But what does he want to do? What are his wants? What is his good pleasure? What does he delight in? What looks good, sounds good, tastes good, smells good to him? What touches him? Okay? And the answer to all that is his son. <laughs> okay? And so the good pleasure that he has in his son, we start to see then the focus for his will, the focus for, for his predestination, for his election, for his sovereignty. All these things then come, in, come into focus. And it happens when uh, you're not afraid of the word according to. <laughs> okay? All right. So, uh, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Uh, I skipped a verse. I skipped two verses. So there's uh, according to, oh, I see how I did that. There's an according to in verse 7, and there's according to in verse 5, and my eye caught the wrong according to. All right. Does that make sense? Do you see the, do you see the according to in verse 5 and the according to in verse 7? And the eye can just kind of jump to the wrong one. That's an error of the eye, and that's how manuscript variants pop up. If you're going to that movie Tuesday night, you're going to see this. It'll be featured in that movie. All right. Back up to verse 5 then. Uh, according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace. 
It's all about Him. It's not about us. Which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. With whom is He well pleased? The Beloved One. That's right. His Beloved Son. Today I have begotten Thee. In Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Made He made known to us, or having made known to us, the mystery of His will. Notice, again, is this a tyrannical will of God? Completely arbitrary, completely sovereignty, and who are you to question it? There is an according to, again, and it's the same according to, His kind intention, His eutychia, His eutychia, which He purposed in Christ. Which He purposed in Christ with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ. That's not the church age. Today, do we see all things summed up in Christ today? Of course not. You and I are in Christ, but every unbeliever in this world is not in Christ. All right, this is looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, the fullness of times after the millennium. So the good pleasure of God it is, it is, you cannot separate, if you're going to do a will of God study, you've got to put a, a good pleasure study to go with it. They are hand in hand. Because the will is according to. The will is according to. According to His kind intention. According to the kind intention of His will. Uh, Philippians. Not only 2.13 where we are this morning, but we've already had this once back in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 15. Remember there were the two crowds that were motivated to start preaching Christ. And uh, one had good motives and the other had bad motives. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. That's, that's not good. Okay? If you're in the ministry because you're jealous of somebody else in the ministry, you're in the ministry for the wrong reasons. Okay? Others, some also from Eutychia. Eutychia, goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So there's a, a goodwill use there. And then finally, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. 2 Thessalonians 1.11. All right. I'm going to skip most of the chapter. It is a useful, um, go through those first 10 verses though, it's useful. You're going to notice a, a big contrast between us and them, those guys and you guys. And um, well, okay, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for your brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. You know, when pastors get together at conferences and they start talking about their flocks, you know, what do they talk about? Paul says he was bragging about Thessalonica Bible Church. And um, being able to, to use them as an example. 
This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. Say, wow, finally, I need a break. When's this break going to come? You know, today would be good. <laughs> you know, the angelic conflict's been ramping up lately. Uh, can we have a break? When, when does the relief come? Oh, when, verse 7 says, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Okay, that hadn't happened yet. Second advent of Jesus Christ, okay. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do you expect? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And there you have it. It's us and them. The redeemed and the lost. And uh, we have our destiny, they've got their destiny. And it's not annihilation, it's eternal separation in the lake of fire. Notice, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Now to this end, all right, that's the context then for verse 11. To this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Can you make yourself worthy of that calling? You can walk in a manner worthy, but who, who reckons you worthy? God does. That God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness. His desires or your desires? There you go, okay? And the work of faith with power. So here he is again at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it's his good pleasure, not yours. Fulfill every desire for goodness, not your selfish human desires for whatever it is you want. You can't use this verse for the name and claim it, you know, heresy that so many folks want to embrace. Fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's about his good pleasure. His good pleasure from the foundation of the world is in his son. His good pleasure from Alpha to Omega is in his son. Now we have a part of that because we are in his son. We have a part of that because the father desires to provide a bride for his son. So we benefit. We benefit because the father wants to provide a, a, a perfected bride for his son. He doesn't want to just give his son a, you know, a spiritual baby. Don't want to give his son a, you know, a worthless little girl that isn't worthy of his son. The bride is being prepared to be suitable to that son. You notice the care that, he, that Abraham took to find a bride for Isaac? Okay, I love that. Randy's taught that two or three times now. It is a, that is a marvelous study. And when you see that, you see the care of, of, of providing Rebecca for Isaac, that's, that, that's a picture. That tells us a lot of the care and the effort and the, and the work that the father puts into preparing a bride for his son. The bride of Christ is not just an empty title. It means a lot. And the perfection process he puts us through is the same perfection process he put his son through. That's the suffering, the fellowship of his suffering being conformed unto his death. And so if you don't like it, if you don't want to suffer, if you don't want to go through the adversity of the angelic conflict, 
then you're not on board with the plan of God. Because that's what He calls all of us to do. Take up our cross and follow Him. All right, that's what we, uh, that's what we deal with there. You know, um, all of these are New Testament verses, but this close use, uh, a usage of fellow and philema, together with words of pleasure and delight, it's not new to the New Testament. It's actually featured throughout the Septuagint as well. It's all throughout the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And, uh, and so we've got more examples beyond just the ones that we were just looking at. And I think some of these are, are fundamental. And they're, uh, they're worth us considering. And uh, if I can take six months to teach this, I can delay the, the uh, grumbling stuff we've got to get to next. All right, Job, uh, no, we're not going to take that long. Job 23, 13. I know, um, and I freely confess, I'm a grumbler. I struggle with it. It's my besetting sin. And, and uh, back when uh, we were, remember when we were in Galatians and I said, hey, we're going to follow Galatians. When the Galatians series ends, we're going to follow with the Philippians series. And everybody got all excited. Ooh, we're going to go to Philippians. We're going to go to Philippians. I knew this verse was in there. And I thought, man, I got to preach, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How do I do that? How, I mean, all right. So we're almost there. The close, this is subpoint E, the final subpoint under, under three, and then we get to point four, and uh, we'll be grumbling and disputing. But the close usage of thelo and thelema, the verb and the noun, the idea of the will of God with good pleasure, verbs of pleasure and delight. Job 23.13, Psalm 5.4, Psalm 16.3, Psalm 22.8, Psalm 40, verse 6 and verse 8, Psalm 51 and verse 16. So here's Job 23. And... Uh, uh, there's been back and forth with Job and his accusers here. And um, this happens to be one of Job's chapters. And he knows he's, uh, he's arguing. He knows he's in rebellion. They're accusing him of rebellion, right? Uh, in verse 2, even today my complaint is rebellion. Um, verse 3, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. You know, Job's a lawyer. He's a judge. So much of this book is in, in judicial terms, in legal terms. And he says, I've got an airtight case here. If I have a fair judge, I can win this thing. The only problem is I can't get there. I can't get to heaven. I can't storm into his presence. If only I knew where to prevent, uh, present my case, I'm going to win. And uh, anyway... We have the chapter here. Um, verse 8, I go forward, but he is not there. Backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You know, for a man to contend with God, how do you do that? You know, how do you... If he doesn't want to be found, how do you find him? If he knows what direction you're turning, then he knows what direction he needs to turn. Okay? Like playing hide-and-go-seek with someone that's omniscient and omnipresent and, you know, or playing tag. How do you, how do you catch him? 
I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. See, he says, I'm innocent. He keeps defending his innocence. Um, so, uh, again, verse 10, he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I've kept his way. I've not turned aside. I've not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. How much doctrine do you take in on a weekly basis? And how does that compare with the number of meals that you eat in a week? You know, you're content with, with one sermon a week? Is that, is that your, your uh, do you eat that same basis? <laughs> All right. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And this is what he fundamentally comes down to. God is sovereign. God is almighty. God is God. He's the only God. He's the only I am. He's the only self-existent, uncreated, uncaused cause. He is unique. Who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. Again, this is not a tyrannical, he does what his sovereignty does. He does what his soul desires. There is a good pleasure there. There is a good pleasure that has things that it's looking at and smelling and hearing and feeling. It is, it is a soul that has a, an aesthetic for what is good pleasing, well pleasing, see. It's not just a, a sovereignty, he said it, it happens. Okay? Bigger than that. So much bigger than that. He performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. All right, so there it is. The, the combination of the will of God with his good pleasure, with his delight. Psalm 5, 4. And the reason why this is so difficult for folks, and actually they will vehemently dispute this, and, and they'll, they think this is, this is a blasphemy. They think God doesn't have emotions, God does not respond to stimuli. God uh, is never you know, happy or angry, even though the Bible says all kinds of places about God's anger and, and, uh, and God's happiness, what is well-pleasing. The fact that God has sensibilities, okay? and I think it comes down to a flaw, they think that if you respond to something that gives you pleasure, if you take pleasure in something, then that changes you. And, and they, they, they view that as incompatible with immutability. So if, if because of experience, because today, uh, because this morning, God is well pleased with a message that's, that's feeding the flock of Austin Bible Church, then he takes pleasure in this today. And in taking pleasure that he didn't take pleasure in yesterday, but he's taking pleasure in something today, then that somehow changes him. Okay? It doesn't change him. To experience something doesn't change him. When we experience things, we are changed to whatever degree we are changed, <laughs> but that's because we're not immutable. All right? And so we can experience something and be changed by it. God can experience something, but it doesn't change him because he's unchangeable. But it really bothers a lot of folks. And yeah, and you can read journals, you can read theologies, you can read all kinds of things, and they're going to go round and round to prove 
that God has no emotions, never gets angry, never has, you know, all these things. And they've got to fundamentally just kind of rewrite a lot of verses out of the Bible instead of taking them as, as we take them. All right. He is well pleased. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he can be well pleased and he can be angry and it doesn't change him at all intrinsically as, as to who he is. So, um, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. And this is, uh, this is a prayer of David's. He says in verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells in you. So what does he take pleasure in? What does he not take pleasure in? What can he abide? What can he not abide? He cannot abide sin in the solemn assembly. What can he not abide? Love does not rejoice in, in, in wickedness, but rejoices in the truth. Let's use God's definition of love. Let's not surrender. This, this world is surrendering. Evangelicals are surrendering. They're compromising their doctrine and they're doing it in so-called love, but it's not the Bible's definition of love. Love does not rejoice in wickedness. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Okay? He loves, he hates, he takes pleasure, he does not take pleasure. He experiences emotions. He experiences them. Now he doesn't experience them like we do. Like I say, we experience things and it can change us. Often it does change us. But God experiences what He experiences and it doesn't change Him. He nevertheless goes through the experience. And I think that's a glory. I think that's a glory. I think um, because He's imminent and transcendent. He's in His creation. He's beyond His trans- uh, creation, but He also operates within His creation. That means he experiences. All right. Psalm 16 and verse 3. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. There you go. Um, more we can say about that. Psalm 22, 8. What happens in Psalm 22? Jesus is on the cross, right? When you think Psalm 22, it's my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is David's prophecy of the crucifixion a thousand years before Christ. David saw the cross a thousand years before Christ and wrote Psalm 22. All the experiences of the cross are here. And uh, notice, when he's on the cross, his critics are mocking him. I am a worm and not a man, it says in verse 6. A reproach of men and despised by the people. This is David's prophecy and is fulfilled in Christ on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. The crowd, they're mocking him, tempting him. And how do they do it? What's the issue they use 
to, 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 to hurt him the most. This issue we're studying today, the Father's good pleasure. He's had three and a half years telling the disciples, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I speak not for myself, but as I hear, I speak. I, the message I have, I have from the Father. I always do the things that please my Father. You're of your Father, the devil. You want to do the things that please him. I'm of my Father. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And that whole doctrine now, they're throwing it in his face and saying, oh, you're pleasing to your Father, huh? Your Father loves you, does he? Then why is he putting you on that cross? And so they're mocking him. They're taunting him. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. If Yahweh really loved you, he'd get you off that cross. What are you doing on that cross? And, uh, you know, Satan does the same thing with us today. We're going through a test. We don't like it. And Satan will have a little minion come along and start whispering to you. You know, you shouldn't have to go through that. God, God loves you. God doesn't want you to go through that. Here. Make this decision. Make this choice. Do this. All those problems are going to go away. Okay? Just bow down and worship me. <laughs> and Satan will he'll give you all these desires of your heart. So commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. He's quoting scripture. He's not lying. Yahweh does delight in you. Yeah. All right. Psalm uh, 40. This is one that gets quoted in uh, Hebrews a lot. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust, has not turned to the proud or to those who lapse into falsehood. I can go to Satan if I want to, but I'm not. I'm going to go to the Father in prayer. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done, your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you, especially that liar who said, I will be like the Most High God. No, he's not even close. There is none to compare with you. I would, if I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count as far as his thoughts towards us. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So you have not desired. That's his good pleasure. That's his will. That's his good pleasure. And it's not ritual. Ritual is, all ritual does is teach a doctrine. The reality is what he wants. I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. My good pleasure is doing your will, God. My good pleasure is doing your will. And so this is the answer to Satan's temptation about coming off that cross. I'm here to go to this cross. This is why I'm here. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And he goes to the cross and he has victory. So he can put the law in Israel's heart when he comes back. Psalm 51, 16. Are we going to make it? We're going to make it. All right, Psalm 51, 16. Psalm 51 is a confession. David got caught with uh, Bathsheba and now he's uh, confessing to be restored from fellowship, or restored to fellowship. And, um, you know, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. 
You know, when the author of Psalm 40 has to quote himself to confess in, in authoring Psalm 51, is that a little ironic? You know? Like when a pastor that's the biggest grumbler in the world has to preach, do all things without grumbling or disputing? It gets personal. And here's David, who wrote Psalm 40, and now has to quote it when he writes Psalm 51 and confesses, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And he's restored to fellowship. Okay? It's a beautiful thing. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the law, the Levitical offerings, what did they have for him? Adultery? Was there a sacrifice for that? Or was the, 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 the penalty was death? Death by stoning. Okay? Murder. Because he committed murder to cover up the adultery. Murder is also death by stoning. So now he's doubly dead. Okay? He's got two death penalties. How, how is the law going to save him? There's no sacrifice for, for that. All right. The antithesis of fear and trembling is grumbling and disputing. The poetry on this is beautiful, by the way, when you see the, the fear and trembling on the one hand, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul is very fond of, of in, in poetic way, of being able to contrast this with that and to do so, be anxious for nothing but in everything. You know, he, he, Paul loves those contrasts. So when he, when he takes the fear and trembling on the one hand and then says, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The antithesis of fear and trembling is grumbling and disputing. Um, Philippians 2.14. Imitating Israel is instant infamy. You don't want to be, I mean, you want to go down the grumbling path, go down the grumbling path, but we've got an entire Old Testament to show us that's a bad idea. Okay? And we've got 1 Corinthians 10 verses 6 through 11 that says God gave us that Old Testament so we wouldn't be grumblers like those guys. Alright? And uh, we have the application there. So, uh, Wednesday, when we come back, we'll begin with this, and uh, we'll talk about Gongudzmas, we'll talk about Dialogizmas, we'll discuss the, the different things about grumbling. What do we accomplish when we grumble anyway? And what are we saying when we're grumbling? Because it's not lamentations. A lamentation is, is, is beautiful. Grumbling is, uh, is putting a bullseye on your back and, and inviting the hand of God's wrath. All right, so let's not, uh, let's not be grumblers. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessing that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father, we, uh, we, we went through a lot of verses this morning. We've, uh, you've blessed us with a, a tremendous amount of content. I pray that we take the time this week to, uh, to listen to it again, to review these verses, to reread them, to pray over them, to, uh, to allow them to dwell richly within each one of us, that we might fully uh, digest them and and uh, and understand them for what they are. And then knowing them, Father, uh, motivate us to make application. Open our eyes to see the, the choices that lie before us and uh, what you would have for us to do. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we do have a third.